Um, it is great to be with you again tonight. Uh, we have five churches that have supported our family. And the story with Gateway is kind of fun. Uh, my brother and his wife, Leanne, they live up farther out in Washougal. And I was literally driving out one day to go drive our stuff into storage out of their place. And I remember thinking, I know they have a church in this area. And so I drove out to this church in Washougal when you didn't have this building. And I met Jackie at the front office. And that is how our relationship with Gateway began. Pastor Bob, thank you for letting me preach each time I come. It is not always true at our churches. And I enjoy it very much. This is our last missionary um, push. After this, I go on staff with First Baptist Eugene starting next week. So we've got lots of missionary cards. They're in the back. This is the last of the trading series. Uh, collect them all. So um, I'm sure they'll be valuable in like 10 or 20 years. Just pick them up back there. Enjoy them. Share them with friends. Um, they don't come with gum. Sorry. That's... Gateway has blessed our family. And uh, I was thinking about some of the ways that Gateway has blessed our family. One, there are some specific prayer warriors in this church who have prayed for us faithfully. And every time I come, they come and they tell me how much they've been praying. And it's, it's evidence in your church as a church of prayer. Uh, this little clicker, this little clicker has traveled the world. It has been all over South America, Central America, and in Bolivia, my friends who are pastors have traveled with this clicker. And it comes from Bob. One day I came here, my first time preaching, and I noticed he was doing something. I said, what do you have? And he let me borrow his clicker. I went out and bought it. Ten years later, I still have it. I carry it everywhere with me. Um, it's traveled all over South America. There was one home assignment we were on, and I had this great idea. I said, you know what? We need to raise another $1,000. Sometimes it's hard to just go out and say, well, you give me $1,000. People don't always respond. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy the best coffee that I know in Bolivia. I'm going to put it in nice packaging. I'm going to take it to the United States, and people will love it. I did that. I traveled with six boxes of nice coffee, and I went to a church and another church, and I finally, I remember, I came to Gateway, and I was discouraged. I mean, I've been tracking this coffee across the Northwest, and I remember I put it in the, in the, in the lobby. I, I hardly thought about it, and literally when I preached here, I still remember Mike was in the lobby, and the last bag, someone was like, I want that bag, and he threw it across the lobby. He had sold all five boxes in um, Friday night and Sunday morning. By the second service Sunday morning, there was no more coffee. It was all gone. So this church has blessed our family in lots of ways. One of the things I wanted to talk about, one of the questions that's been on my mind, is what do you do when God says go? What do you do when God says go? For the last 10 years, I've been a field leader in Bolivia with World Venture. That means I've supervised projects and people. And it's because 15 years ago, God put it on my heart and my wife's heart to go. And, and we left. We left everything we had. We put it in storage at my brother's house. We left our family, our friends, everything we had. We left and we went because God said go. But what do you do when God says go and you aren't expecting him to say go? What if life is normal? What if life is, for us, we were in Bolivia and life, life was all right? We, we, we had an apartment that we owned. We had a ministry that we loved. And about two years ago, we were praying. Careful if you pray. We were praying. And I remember thinking, that can't be right. I hear God saying go. 
And I remember I had this conversation with God. God, I think I hear you saying go. I am. Go. And I remember talking with God. We have a very conversational relationship. God, just to let you know, I'm the one who went. So remember you say go, but I already have gone. I'm, I'm in South America. God said go. So I talked to my wife. And I said, Daryl, I think God is saying go. And she said, I think so too. I said, you do? She said, yes. So we prayed for six months because we figured God might... Maybe the messages got crossed, you know? Maybe there were some things we prayed for six months and it was quite obvious. God was saying go. So we made a decision to pass off the batons of leadership. We had people rising up in the leadership doing what we were doing. This is the city we lived in, in Cochabamba. It's beautiful. It's in the mountains, 8,500 uh, 8, feet elevation. And God raised up these people. This is Eugene and Veronica. He's from South Africa, and his wife's from Bolivia. And some of you might know I supervised a project over sports. Eugene does sports. And God brought up Eugene, and he took over that ministry, and he now runs it, and is doing more than I could have ever done. What do you do when God says go? There's uh, over there on the far right is Johnny Orozco. And Johnny was and has been my mentor, my friend, my counselor. He has, he has hosted every short-term team we've brought to Bolivia and sent them back. He has prayed faithfully. He now leads our team in, in Bolivia. The team continues on. It just doesn't have my family. I just got a message from him last month, and he said, Dan, our missionaries from Germany just arrived. We've got two, and there's another on the way. And I remember thinking, I would love to be there, but I also know that I never had those connections in Germany. Johnny did. What do you do when God says go? What do you do when God says go? Well, for us, we handed off leadership, we left Bolivia, and now we're back in the Northwest, and I get to pastor at a church in Eugene, Oregon. It's very hard. It's one of the dif- most difficult changes we've ever made. What do you do when God says go? How do you respond? Tonight we're going to talk about, from the book of Acts, you've been going through Luke, 41 lessons through Luke, right? You've got, you can add it up, mathematicians, how many to go to get to 109, right? Acts is the second chapter of Luke. Same author. Luke wrote Luke, and they liked it so much, he continued to write Acts. We're going to write about that, uh, talk about that. And two stories I want to shape and frame what we're going to talk about in the book of Acts. Two stories that have shaped my life. The first is this. Back when I was in high school, I grew up in a church. I had a Christian family. We went to, to church Sunday nights and Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and Saturday morning work days and Thursday night prayer times. And we were always going to church. And I remember my freshman year of high school, I moved from a private school, which was a Christian school, to a public school. And I remember it was so scary and I was so nervous. But, but at that public school, my, my faith began to thrive because I began to get to know all these people who believed different things than myself. And that, in that interaction, God became very real to me. My junior year of high school, I remember thinking, God, I would, I would love to be able to share my faith, but I don't know how. God's an amazing God. He answers our prayers in, in, in very fun ways. And I remember I was sitting in history class, and I, I remember we were going through, and, and it was like three months into the, the school year, and from the back of the class, we were walking out the doorway, this guy walks up, and he says, hi, my name's Justin. And I said, hi, I'm Dan. And he said, hey, I'd like to know if we could get together tonight. I said, um, sure. He said, I know you lead a Bible study, and I'd like to talk to you. 
That was it. I, I didn't know him. I hadn't met him. He had just arrived to our school like a month late. I, I'd seen him in the back of our class, but we'd never, ever met. That night I went over to his house, and he, he poured out his story to me, and he, he shared about his life. And, and at the end of it he said, the reason I want to talk to you is I want to know Jesus because I see Jesus in your life. Will you tell me about Jesus? That doesn't normally happen, right? Why does God do that? I'll tell you why. Because I was too scared to share with other people. So God had to take somebody, put them in my life, have them ask me to go to their house so they could talk to me, so they could say, I think I want to know about Jesus. Will you tell me? So that somebody like Dan would go, okay, I will. Because sometimes God's will for our life is sitting right beside us. We just aren't listening. Sometimes God's will for our life is sitting right beside us. We just aren't listening. The second story that shaped my life happened at Trout Creek Bible Camp. It's a camp over in Corbett, Oregon. I grew up going to that camp. My nephews and nieces, they still work at that camp. I have great memories from that camp. But back when I was on staff, we were able to do things that you are prohibited from doing now. Things like... um, Full tackle games without pads, where literally the only goal was to smash the other person into the dirt as far as you could, because it was camp, and you could do that. And I remember one night, on a Thursday night, we took the boys, and it was a a junior high camp, and the boys went one way and the girls went another, and what we did with the boys is we basically hiked a mile out into the woods, and we played this game called Guerrilla Warfare. It's because it was basically... You drew a circle in this, this fielded area with chalk, and you put some prize in the middle of the circle, and half the boys had to go hide in the woods, and half the boys had to guard the circle, and there were no rules. That was it. Boys get into the circle. Boys keep boys from getting into the circle. That's it. That's the whole game. And it lasted for like two hours. And so literally you'd have boys in the woods who would all of a sudden go chucking through this field and diving towards a circle while you'd have other boys just jump on top of them. And it was like this madhouse of just, you know, boyhood. Well, I remember that particular night because I was with the group that was guarding the circle. And I remember catching out of the corner of my eye something going on over to the side. It was this one kid, and he was running, and there were a couple other kids chasing. But that was kind of normal. But what, what caught my eye was that in the, in the smashing and the clashing, one of those kids fell, and he didn't fight to get back up. He just fell. And I remember that's why it kind of caught my attention. And as I, as I kind of looked over that way, the camp director had already moved in, and my, my brother had, had moved close. And what had happened was a knee from one boy had collided with the head of the other, and he'd gone on the ground and went immediately unconscious. That's why it's prohibited now. <laughs> it's not my fault, but I was there. I remember the camp director, he came towards me, and he, because I was a runner, and my camp name was 10K. And what I remember he told me is he said, 10K, I need you to run. Run now, run fast. My walkie-talkie will not reach the nurse. And I remember thinking, I'll run faster if two people are here. I said, well, can Jib Bob run with me? And he said, sure. 10K and Jib Bob, run, run now, run fast. I need you to get the nurse. It was probably the fastest mile I've ever run in my life. Because we took off sprinting and we didn't stop until we got to the nurse's station. 
I listened to my brother preach in his podcast, and one of the things that he shared in August was that sometimes we need to pray, but sometimes we need to go. And what I learned from that story was that sometimes God calls us to run. And when we are called to run, we need to run, run now, and run fast. Because people's lives depend on it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26. Verse 26. While you turn there, let's pray together. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for Gateway Community Church. I thank you for the leadership of Pastor Bob and Bill and Ken and all those who, who lead this church and this community for all that they are doing. And I thank you for your word that you've given to us. And I thank you that you have not left us alone. You have sent your spirit and he guides us and leads us. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask you to speak to us tonight in ways that would impact us this week in our lives, in our families, in our work, in our communities. This is what I ask, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Acts, chapter 8, starting in verse 26. This is what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south through the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now there are two people in this passage, and I want to pull them out before we go farther. Because there are two people you need to know about. And the first in this passage is behind this passage, and his name is Luke. Luke wrote this story. He wrote the whole book of Acts. He wrote the whole book of Luke. And what is unique about Luke as a biblical author, as as one of the, the gospel writers, is that Matthew, Mark, and John were all Jews. They were Jewish by birth. They were Jewish by culture. They were Jewish by religion. And so when they came to worship Jesus, the Jewish rabbi who was God, they also had their Jewish culture. But Luke, Luke was unique because Luke was a Gentile. And the reason that makes him unique is that everyone else was already part of the Jewish faith. Everyone else was already part of that whole system. Everyone else had a lot of that, that, that place where they knew about Yahweh God. They knew about these things, but they didn't have all the pieces put together. Jesus did that for them. The Holy Spirit did that. Luke, as a Gentile, was an outsider. And when you read in his Gospel of Luke, and as you read through the book of Acts, what you will find again and again and again in the story of Luke is his crying call that outsiders can become insiders. There's a place for me. And if you are an outsider, there's a place for you. Because God loves outsiders. So that is the the first person you need to know in this story. He's the author writing that. He's the reason why we're reading about the second person in this story. And that is the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch. At this time and at this place, when you think about this time in history, back at the start of the early church, Ethiopia was as far as the known world had gone and could think about. Now, there were people around the world, and we know that, but at that time in the written history of the world, Ethiopia was as far as the Jewish people had thought. It's as far as the Roman Empire had reached. So it's no, it's no coincidence that Luke is writing about an Ethiopian. Do you remember that, that verse at the start of Acts? Do you remember that verse where 
It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke wrote that. And all through Acts you will find that he's talking about people from the... This Ethiopian represents the ends of the earth. But not only was he an Ethiopian, he was a eunuch. He was a eunuch. That meant that he as a man had been cut off so that he could serve in the, in, in the courts of the queen. So there'd be no competition between him and others because he was a man, he'd been cut off. It gave him privilege, but it also put him as an outsider. He couldn't marry. He couldn't have kids. He couldn't have any of those things that other families were having. He was an outsider from the outside of the known world, an Ethiopian eunuch. And yet Luke says, Luke says, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Doesn't that, doesn't that just strike you a bit odd? Why would somebody from the farthest known place that, that they knew of come to Jerusalem to worship? Not just to visit, not to go on a tour, to worship. Well, it's because he was reading in the book of Isaiah. He was reading in the book of Isaiah. There's this, there's this passage in Isaiah, chapter 56. If you look in Isaiah chapter 56, it says this, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Isaiah. We know that at that time... In the Roman world, they had, they had uh, divided out the, the, the peoples. And there in Ethiopia, there was a group that had been a bit uh, rebellious with another. And so what they did to protect those peoples, they took some Jews, they moved them far away, and they made them a buffer between the Ethiopians and the others. And so they had the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Hebrew Scriptures in that way went to Ethiopia. And that's how we know that somehow the Scriptures went to Ethiopia. He read this passage, and he was coming to Jerusalem to worship. Because God has made people who are seeking. People are seeking. They don't seek of their own accord. They don't seek because of something within them. They seek because God puts it in their hearts to seek after God. It's an amazing, wonderful thing of our God that he draws people to himself who are seeking. And so this this Ethiopian, on his way to Jerusalem, had read this passage in Isaiah that says, there's a place for me. I may be a eunuch. I may be from far out. But I hear about this God, Yahweh God, and even as an outsider, Isaiah says there's a place for me. I want to know that God and find out who he is so I can worship. But the sad part of the story is that you'll notice Rise goes south to the road that goes away from Jerusalem. He had gone all the way to Jerusalem to worship, and now he was going away, still seeking, still seeking. He wanted to worship Yahweh God. He went all the way to Jerusalem, but for some reason, he didn't find what he was looking for, and he was still leaving, hoping to find an answer, but had not found it in Jerusalem. Interesting. So people are speaking. Read with me in Acts chapter 8. We'll continue on the story. It says, He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up 
and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, he was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. Not only has God put it in people's hearts to seek after him, but the God that we serve is still speaking. The God that I serve, Yahweh God, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, the God of the Christian New Testament Scriptures, is still speaking. And he was speaking in this passage to Philip, and he was speaking in this passage to the Ethiopian. The Holy Spirit moved in Philip and said, Go this way. God was speaking. Through the prophet Isaiah, God put something on this eunuch's mind that he would go all the way to Jerusalem to to seek after worship through his word. And then it says, interestingly, through Philip, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I'm always amazed when I, when I try and come up with strategy, when I try and come up with all these different things, and then I'm coming back to the fact that God's word has power in and of itself. And that the God that we know and that we worship is still speaking today. One of the the projects I was most proud of while I was in Bolivia was our sports project, Bless. But that project started in my kitchen, not because of my kitchen or because of my person, but because we were studying the book of Genesis, and I wasn't even leading the study. It was, it was somebody else named Adiel. And as they got to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God told Abram, through me you will be a blessing to all nations, this little group of four people said, that's us. And we're going to go bless people in the name of Jesus. Let's do it through sports. God's word motivates people and is still speaking today. I've been privileged to work in the last few years in in a, a whole area of ministry called business as mission. And as I've been doing a lot of study and a lot of work and a lot of training and a lot of organization in that area, I've been struck with the fact that as you read through Proverbs chapter 31, you will find... God's instructions about business for people. As you read through many parts of Scripture, you will find that God has a heart for how we use money and profit and how we generate products and how we just... It's amazing what God has put in His Word. And we found that our ministry took on a whole new perspective when we taught the theology of work from God's Word to business people in Bolivia. Because God's Word is still speaking. God's Word is still speaking. Sometimes, uh, as missionaries, people have put us in a separate category. I live here, but you live there. I live this life, but you live that life. It's very different than my own. But as I think about mission, if I was to describe mission, I would describe it this way. Mission prays global, but lives local. Mission prays global, but lives local. I think that's what Philip was doing in this passage, and let me describe it to you. When I became... Uh, a member of World Venture and, and was a missionary. There was another missionary with Campus Crusade from Christ for Christ, and they were also living in Bolivia. And they came to our house and they gave us these words of advice. They said, wherever you live, live there as if you're there for the rest of your life. Put down roots, buy a house, make friends, put your kids in school, but live as if you're there for the rest of your life, and that way you will be local. 
Whenever we make our ministry local, we find our impact grows. And I found that as a missionary, if I make myself local, I have this incredible impact. Sometimes we focus so much on the global aspect of what we want to do that we forget about the local aspect. And sometimes we can focus so much on our local aspect that we forget about the global aspect. So I believe if we pray globally and live locally, we do what is called God's mission. We took a a challenge as a family. And we went through um, a World World Visions prayer challenge. It's a 60-day prayer challenge. And what it did is they sent us an email every day where we'd pray for a different part of the world while we're living in Bolivia. And I found that my heart would be burdened for what God was doing to the point where I'd be crying as we'd be praying as we prayed country by country by country by country by country. But you know what that did for me? It gave me a great heart for Bolivia and for the people in Bolivia because that's where I lived. You need to know that every missionary that you send out is a global missionary from here but is local where they live. And from my perspective, the United States is global. This is a totally new country for me. When we do mission, we pray global and we live local. But what that does in our hearts when we pray globally and live locally is it lets us live like Philip. Ethiopians traveling to Jerusalem would not be a common thing. And normally an Ethiopian coming to Jerusalem would be an outsider, would be somebody you would not relate to, would be somebody you would not talk to. But I believe that because Philip had this perspective to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, he was praying globally that when he saw this Ethiopian, he was ready. He was ready. So let's continue on in the story. Continue on in the story. So the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And beginning with the scriptures, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, verse 36, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found his way to Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns till he came to Caesarea. The God that I serve, the God that we serve as a church, is a God who's creating hearts that seek after him. Is a God who speaks through his spirit, through us if we're willing. And he's also a God who expects and hopes that when he speaks, we will run. When he speaks, we will run. Do you notice that when Philip got the instructions, it says he began to run. When Philip got his instructions from the Holy Spirit, he began to run. Now part of that is practical, right? The Holy Spirit moves him and says, go and stand in this road, and while he's standing in this road wondering what he's supposed to do, the, Philip, the Holy Spirit says, there's a, there's a chariot, I want you to go speak to him. So just put two and two together, right? He's standing, there's a chariot. If he's going to go speak to that chariot, what's he going to do, right? He has to run. But that means he has to run and run fast and run hard and run now. If he had stopped and said, well, let me think about that. Um, Let me stop and pray about that for six months and I'll figure out if that is what you want me to do. He would have missed the chariot, right? If he would have said, you know what, I'm going to write a song about that. Go and catch the chariot, go and, you know. He would have missed the chariot. 
If he would have formed a prayer group to pray about it. You know, let's, let's meet on Thursday mornings. We're going to pray about the chariot. We're going to pray about the man in the chariot. He would have missed the chariot. There are times we're supposed to pray. There are times we're supposed to sing. There are times we're supposed to, But there are also times when we need to run. And Philip was a, was a man who, when the Holy Spirit spoke, it says he began to run. He began to run. But there's a second man. If you notice the Ethiopian, as Philip opened his mouth and began to explain the good news, they were going along the road. There came some water. The eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Immediately after understanding the good news of the God who accepts outsiders, the, the eunuch said, Right now, I want to declare myself, here in the middle of the desert, a follower of Jesus. I want to be baptized now. He was also running. And I think both of them could be running because they were ready. They were ready. Philip had readied his heart by praying globally, like Jesus said when he left Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. He'd been praying globally and living locally, so he was ready. When I was a a kid in elementary school, I liked to try and play basketball. It's because my older brother, Mike, he was a great basketball player. He was tall. He could bump people out of the way. I watched them go to state as a team. And so I was 10 years younger, and I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and play basketball. So I, I tried to play basketball, but I really stunk at basketball. I stunk at basketball because basketball season would start in December, and I would start shooting baskets to practice December 1st. And everyone else had been playing all year, Right? And the only reason I'd ever make the team was because I was a runner and I would come out of cross-country season and we'd start basketball practice December 1st and we would start running lines in the gym and I would be running so fast, running the coach would be like, that guy's got to be able to play, you know, put him on the team. And then he'd watch me try and shoot and be like, wow, he stinks. And then I would sit on the bench. And so my basketball career ended in eighth grade. I got tired of filling water cups. But my son, my son is a soccer player. And my son really wanted to learn to play goalie. And so he took me to the market in Bolivia, and he said, I'd really like us to get goalie gloves. And so we bought some goalie gloves. And then he, he took us to the park that was beside our house, and he said, what I want you to do is take this ball and just throw it at me. I was like, really? Yeah, just throw it at me. So I'd throw the ball at him, and he would dive and just, like, jump on the ball. And I'd throw it to the left. I'd throw it to the left and throw it to the right. Now don't tell me. Just throw it one way or the other. And he would just do this time after time. And I said, Ben, you don't play goalie. I know. He plays forward because he likes to run as well. I just want to learn to play goalie. So we'd go to the park. He had his goalie gloves, and he would be practicing and practicing. And one of the coaches picked up on this, that he liked to play goalie. Now, they had a really good goalie on their team. But after practice, he said, if you want to learn to play goalie, I will work with you. And so he would stay a half hour after practice, and he would go through all these drills that only goalies do all by himself with the coach. During our last month in Bolivia, we went to one of his games, and the goalie didn't show up. And 15 minutes before the game started, his coach turned and said, Ben, I want you to play goalie. You know what Ben did? He ran. He ran. He ran to his backpack. He got his goalie gloves that he had there waiting. I ran to the uh, little marketplace because I needed to get knee pads and other things. So he had no padding at all for all the jumping and diving he'd be doing. I remember he, he quickly put on all of his pads and he ran to the, to the field and he got all ready because he was finally able to play goalie. Why was Ben able to do that? Because he was ready. I started with one question. What do you do when God says go? What do you do when God says go? 
A lot of it depends on if we're ready. And we get ready by praying. It readies our hearts. It changes our minds. It puts us in line with what God is doing so that when God speaks, we are ready. We are ready. One last little passage. It says, But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I'm a, I'm a missionary with World Venture, and I get to raise support, and I get to go from country to, and I get to go to different places because churches like you and families support our families so that I can do what I do. But you need to know at this time and at this place, missionaries, the way we understand them, did not exist. There were really about three job choices at this time in history. You were either in agriculture or in a trade. You were producing goods. Or you were a merchant and you were collecting those goods and you were selling those goods to other people. Or you were in government and you were taxing or orchestrating the distribution of those goods all along. Those were really your three job choices at this time. So when we read that Philip was at Azotus and he passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea, you know what that tells me? Of those three job choices, most likely Philip was a businessman. He was most likely moving from town to town to town because he had business in each of those towns. And as he passed through each of those towns, he shared the gospel in his normal work life. Does that change the perspective of the story for you? Because it does for me when I think about it that way. Do you realize that what God wants us to do as people are seeking after him, and he is speaking his words, and he's asking people to speak his words for him to other people, that when, when he speaks, he, he expects us to run after him, that he wants us to do all of that in our normal, everyday life. In our normal, everyday life. Sometimes the ends of the earth can be as far away as Bolivia. Sometimes it can be sitting right beside us. Sometimes it can be right next to us, and we're just not noticing. When I was packing up our family in Bolivia, we had a company come in and pack up our home so we could put on a container and pass all the customs rules. And as we had all these different people in our house, there was a team of about three guys working for two days to put it all together and get it all documented so we could go in the, in the container and, and arrive here, which it still hasn't. Please pray it arrives in October. We'd really like our stuff. I remember one day I went out, and they, they, the second day I went out, and I bought a whole bunch of Coke and a bunch of cookies, and we put them in the, in the kitchen, and I said, you guys have been tired and worked really hard. So we put it out, and they took a break, and they, they drank Coke, and we ate cookies. And I remember as we were talking, that normal talk of life, Jesus came up. And we began talking about Jesus in the normal flow of life. And I was reminded, Daniel, you have people in your home, you're thinking about moving countries, but at this point in time, there's also a conversation God wants you to be having with these people right here. Sometimes God will is sitting right beside us, but we need to be ready. We need to be ready. I don't know if you've read the news recently, but the, the Ethiopian church has recently come under persecution. Have you, have you seen that? And there's been some Ethiopian Christians who, who were killed for what they believe. Have you seen that? Do you want to know where the Ethiopian church started? Right here in Acts, as far as we know. It started on a road out of Jerusalem going towards Azotus with a man named Philip who ran when God said go. And at this point in time, the Ethiopian church is 16 million brothers and sisters in Christ strong. 20% of the population declares their faith in Jesus Christ. Simply because a man named Philip ran towards a eunuch who was an Ethiopian outsider from the ends of the earth 
to talk to him about Jesus. So as we look at this story, as we look at what mission is, people are seeking after God. So just a few questions to apply it to your life. Let's bring it home. Am I seeking? Seeking isn't a one-time process. Seeking isn't something that I I saw after. I'm done. I'm done seeking. I'm all done seeking. I, I can go on to the next thing. Seeking after God is something we do. And we keep doing. And we keep doing. Because when we are seeking after God, we can share that with others. We can't share with other seekers if we ourselves are no longer seeking. Our God is speaking. Are we listening? When we pray, are we always talking or do we take time to listen and hear what he has to say? Are we developing such a rhythm in our life with prayer where, where prayer is a 24-7 thing that's just going on all the time? So that when God is speaking, we're listening so that we're ready. You just tell me what to say, and when you say, I'll do it. When you say, I'll do it. What do you do when God says go? What do you do when God says go? Third question. Am I running my God-given race? Am I running my God-given race? One of the things that burdens me as a, as a missionary who's lived in Bolivia is that people would look at my life and they would think, I'm so glad you did what you did. I'm so glad I could support you for what you did. And I'm so glad we have people like you sharing the gospel and doing what you did. And I'm glad about that too. But my heart burns that we would never take a missionary's role and, and, and say, I don't have to run a race because you ran a race. Because we all have a race. And my race was in Cochabamba for the last 10 years, but I have a new race. It's in Eugene, Oregon. And I'm going to run that race. And you have a race. It's in Washougal. Are you running your race? And are you running with everything you've got? Ready and willing, seeking after God, knowing that he speaks? Hebrews writer says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down the right hand of God. Jesus had a race. I'm thankful that he ran his race. Because mission is about people. It's about people. Philip was very focused on people. It wasn't just the cities that he went to. He was sharing in all the towns to people. It wasn't just about the Ethiopian. It was that this Ethiopian was a person who was seeking after, needing to know about Jesus. And one of the things I've had to remember in my life is that I wasn't just sent to Bolivia. I was sent to the people of Bolivia. And you were sent to the people of Washougal. And I will be sent to the people of Eugene because mission is all about people. I think about that camp director, 10K and Jim Bob, run now, run fast. My walkie-talkie will not reach the nurse. What do you do when God says go? Would you run fast knowing that somebody's life depended on it? When we moved back to the United States, one of the things that scared me most was that my kids would be going to a public school. They have grown up in Bolivia. They know South American culture, but we're moving them to the United States, and this might as well be Europe. It might as well be Mars They don't really know the United States. They don't really understand the United States. And here we are. We've gotten here just a couple months, and we send them into a public school. I still remember, because it was just two and a half weeks ago that I dropped my son Ben off for sixth grade. And I drove up to the front of a middle school, which has 535 students, and he comes from a school K through 12 with 181. 
And I remember as I'm driving up as a dad that Ben is scared. And I'm trying to hide the fact that I am terrified. And he gets out of the car, and I drop him off at the curb, and I remember thinking, you just got to keep going, Dan. He's a sixth grader. He, he can do this. So I remember I drive off, but I drive off really slow so that I have my rearview mirror. I can see what he's doing, right? And I watch him walk out, and then I see him do this. He stops. He puts his hand up to his face, and his head goes down. And he stands there for about five seconds. And then head up, and he goes through the doors. I remember thinking, oh, he made it. He was scared. This last week, we were eating dinner together. And as we were eating dinner together, Rachel, who's in fourth grade, and Ben, who's in sixth grade, this is what the conversation was. Rachel said, hey, I just found out that my friend has never heard about Jesus. And so we were talking about Jesus. And Ben said, hey, I just found out that my friend I was talking to, such as, he's never heard about Jesus. We were talking about Jesus. And Rachel said, I wonder if, if one of the reasons we're here is so that we can share with Jesus about people from the mouths of fourth graders and sixth graders. Mouths of fourth graders and sixth graders. I wish I could say that that was my perspective, that that was my idea, that that was my... It wasn't. There's a reason why God says we're like the faith of a child. Sometimes as children we know these things. As adults we forget these things. We just need to remember. What do you do when God says go? We serve a God who is drawing people to himself. Seeking. We serve a God who is still speaking and he uses us, like Philip, to speak his words. And when he says go, what will you do? What will you do? God, we thank you for this church and we thank you for Gateway and I thank you for the opportunity to serve you in Bolivia. But now the race before me is in Eugene and I ask that you would help me run that race with all my heart. And everyone here, I know that for some reason they are here in Washougal. And they are part of this church, either tonight or for, for many nights. But this is where they are right now. You have a race laid out for them. I'd like to pray for this church. That while she will be a church, that when you speak, they run. And they run fast and they run hard. Because people's lives depend on it. Jesus, I thank you that you've given us your words. And that you, you sent Luke to write to us about outsiders who become insiders. About a place for everybody in your kingdom. Help us to be a part of sharing that news with other people. And we thank you this in your name, Jesus. Amen.